Chief Justice, may it please the court. I'm Amy Swearer. And I'm Giancarlo Conaparo. And welcome to SCOTUS 101, where we break down what's happening at the Supreme Court, what the justices are up to, and other things related to our favorite branch of government. Welcome to another episode of SCOTUS 101. This week, I'm joined by my friend and Mies Center colleague, Zach Smith, who's filling in for Amy. Thanks so much for letting me join you today, GC. I appreciate the opportunity to be here. Well, thank you for joining us. So this week, the court is once again not holding oral arguments, but it did decide to consider two new cases later in the term. The first case is Cornelia versus Strom. Now, this case concerns the so-called community caretaking exception to the Fourth Amendment's warrant requirement and will decide whether that exception applies to the home. The community caretaking exception allows police to undertake a warrantless search or seizure if they are exercising so-called caretaking functions that are unrelated to investigating crimes. So, for example, in the case that created this exception, Katie versus Dombrowski, the police were allowed to conduct a warrantless search of a car trunk that was conducted incident to towing the car after it was involved in an accident. In this case, police entered Mr. Cornelia's home after his wife called them and asked them to perform a wellness check on him. Once inside, they seized his guns, believing that he might be a danger to himself or others. He subsequently sued the police, but the trial court invoked the community caretaking doctrine and dismissed the case. This was upheld on appeal, and now Cornelia is arguing at the Supreme Court that the community caretaking exception has never been applied to the home. It should remain in the context of automobiles where it was created and should not be expanded into the context of the home. The court also took up the case of United States v. Cooley. This case involves an interesting intersection between search and seizure law and Indian country law, which governs many aspects of life for American Indian tribe members and those living on reservation lands. Under Indian country law, the authority of tribal police officers with respect to non-Indians and non-tribe members is very limited. Around 1 a.m. in February of 2016, a tribal police officer approached a truck that was stopped on the side of the road within the Crow Reservation in Montana in order to see if the driver needed assistance. The driver of the car turned out to be Joshua James Cooley, who was a non-Indian. During a brief conversation with Cooley, the officer spotted two semi-automatic rifles on the front seat. The officer detained Cooley and searched his truck where he discovered drugs and more guns. Cooley was subsequently indicted on federal drug and gun charges. Cooley sought to suppress the evidence on the theory that the tribal police officer had exceeded his authority in detaining him and in conducting the search. The district court agreed and suppressed the evidence and the Ninth Circuit affirmed. So the question the Supreme Court will answer is whether a tribal police officer can temporarily detain and search a non-Indian who is on a public road within a reservation for possible violations of state or federal law. You know, if the Supreme Court keeps up this trend of, of taking Indian law cases, they're going to create a whole pocket industry of, of Indian law professors. That's absolutely right, GC. You know, they certainly uh, created a lot of shockwaves last term with their McGirt ruling. No kidding. Well, we are still waiting for the court to act on two challenges to New York's COVID restrictions, which were brought by houses of worship. As you might recall, New York's COVID orders restrict houses of worship to 10 or 25 occupants, regardless of the building's capacity, but they permit many secular businesses to operate without any occupancy restrictions. 
A couple of these cases have headed the court's way this term already, but the court has not weighed in on the substantive issues or the standard of review, but has only summarily denied emergency relief. That means that lower courts, which are being inundated with similar suits, have received little guidance from the high court as to resolve these issues. This week, we're fortunate to have Professor Josh Blackman back on the show to discuss them. He's been blogging about these issues at Reason.com, and he has a recent law review article in the Harvard Journal of Law and Public Policy on the relationship between COVID orders and fundamental rights. Professor Blackman is a great friend to the show, having joined us several times. He is a professor at the South Texas College of Law in Houston, an adjunct scholar at the Cato Institute, and founder and president of the Harlan Institute. He is a prolific scholar on constitutional law, the Supreme Court, and the intersection of law and technology. Longtime listeners will also recall that he is the founder of Fantasy SCOTUS. Professor, or as he told me to call him before we got on the air, Josh, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. So I'd love to start our discussion with your recent blog post at Reason.com. And you highlighted some strange goings on with the Chief Justice's concurring opinion in South Bay United Pentecostal. What was that case and how did it shake out in the court? Sure. And thank you so much for having me. Um, Since the COVID outbreak in March of 2020, um, governments around the country have imposed um, unprecedented restrictions on assembly. um, And that often includes religious worship. Um, In some states, uh, governments have deemed houses of worship essential and there have been no restrictions on prayer. Um, In other states, religion has not been deemed essential. And uh, houses of worship have been treated perhaps in the same fashion as some commercial businesses and in some ways worse than other commercial businesses. Um, South Bay was a case from California uh, where a church argued that the restrictions imposed were a violation of the free exercise clause. And they asked the Supreme Court for what's called an injunction, basically an emergency relief pending the uh, lower court appeal. Um, The court denied it, the injunction, by a five to four vote. Uh, There was no majority opinion. Um, Chief Justice Roberts wrote a brief, I think it was about two pages, a two-page concurrence, um, where he basically said the court should not favor injunctive relief, and especially when things in the ground are very dynamic. Um, It wasn't meant to be a thorough discussion of the free exercise clause. It wasn't meant to be a thorough discussion of pandemic law. It was very sparse, and it basically said, we don't like injunctive relief from the Supreme Court. Um, But since that's happened... Uh, lower courts have treated the chief's single concurrence, a one-member concurrence, as gospel, uh, no, no pun intended. Um, they've cited it in every context imaginable, free exercise of religion, free speech, Second Amendment, voting rights, Eighth Amendment, uh, search and seizure, right? Every issue you can think of, this case has been cited in. Um, and the lower courts, frankly, have misconstrued it. Roberts was discussing the role of the Supreme Court to intervene in local affairs. That's not the standard that lower district courts have to follow when they're granting injunctive relief. So uh, I, I don't want to say this lightly, but lower courts have been lazy, right? They've just looked at the chief judge said, okay, thanks, Roberts, for bailing us out. We're going to cite you, even though Roberts did not say that. He never said that district court judges must have this insane burden of proof to grant injunctive relief on a free exercise case. That's not what he said. And I think lower courts have just misread him. And, and either they, they, they don't know, they don't care, or they're happy to just defer. Uh, but they can't pin this in the chief. You know, that was my opinion as well, but I felt like I should have somebody with more gravitas come on the show and say that the lower courts were lazy. Life tenure is good, <laughs> both for so, me and for them. 
So South Bay um, was a case on the court's so-called shadow docket. Can you explain what the shadow docket is? I have to give credit to Will Bode, uh, who's a, a professor at UChicago and a good friend. Um, Will wrote an article some years ago called The Shadow Docket, where he explained how the court had increasingly started resolving cases without oral argument. They would just sort of issue a, a one-page or even a one-sentence opinion that would resolve a dispute. Right, so the shadow docket's well known, but what's novel about this case is we're not talking about the shadow docket resolving one case. It's you're taking this sort of emanation from the shadow docket, and you're just expanding it to every single penumbra of federal law. Right, every facet of federal law is being guided by an unsigned uh, procuring opinion with a solo justice concurrence, um, and it's really stunning uh, uh, at how much of an impact this single concurrence has had. Perhaps not since. Justice Powell's Bakke concurrence, any single justice concurrence mattered so much. And even then, that wasn't an argued case with a 414 split. Here, you, you had no argued case. It was on an injunctive relief uh, appeal, which was seldom granted anyway. So what was the substance of the chief's opinion that lower courts are latching onto, and how are they using it? Look, the chief had some language that's very good. He said, you know, you have to show this clear error, right? You have to show this clear right. And that's never been the standard for a lower court injunction. That's the standard for the Supreme Court intervening. Um, Robert cited some language from Jacobson v. Massachusetts, a case I'm happy to talk about involving a vaccination from the early 1900s. Roberts didn't actually say that's a governing standard. He just said we have to defer, right? But lower court said, aha, this is proof that Jacobson, a 1905 opinion by Justice John Marshall Harlan, uh, uh, is now our guiding life of the First Amendment. Again, I, I don't like using the word lazy, but it's lazy. If you actually read Jacobson, that's not what Harlan says. And we've had a century, a century of jurisprudence after Jacobson. And you cannot use the chief's opinion as proof positive that Jacobson is the definitive standard. And look, this is not just something that um, con- uh, liberal judges have done. Dear friends of this podcast on the Fifth Circuit wrote an opinion where they said the, the Jacobson governs uh, you know, all these cases. Uh, it was an abortion case. I think they, they, they were wrong. Um, I think Jacobson might govern some substantive due process, but it's not the standard for everything. And, and Judge Jim Ho, another friend of this program, uh, I think got it right in the Fifth Circuit. Can you walk us through one of, uh, an example of one of these cases and show us just how lower courts in, uh, in context besides free exercise have taken the chief concurrence and applied it? Oh, sure. I, I think the, the most... Um, salient example is actually voting rights, um, uh, which is perhaps a, a loaded issue as we speak right now. The question is whether courts um, have the authority to sort of uh, make exceptions to voting laws because of the pandemic, you know, to expand early voting. And there were a number of decisions where the where the courts have said, no, you can't do this, right? Chief Justice Roberts said on South Bay means you defer. And because of Jacobson, you don't, you don't let the courts intervene. So you're, you're taking a context that's so far removed from what Roberts actually wrote, uh, you know, a free exercise, and you're saying it to voting rights. Uh, we've also seen it with uh, prison uh, prison cases, right? Uh, what are the conditions you must keep prisoners in? And again, courts have cited South Bay that, you know, you have no Eighth Amendment claims uh, uh, because you defer. Um, we've seen this with, with free speech, right? Uh, where, where you have uh, organizations that want to meet and assemble, right, and have public public um, assembly. And the court said, no, 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 South Bay says that we have to defer. So really, when I say it's laziness, I don't mean that in a pejorative. I mean, they're simply just taking an opinion that has some language that looks favorable, and they're, they're using it at such a high level of generality that it really gives absolute deference to the state. 
Um, I'm sure many of you, uh, many of the people listening saw Justice Alito, or at least they saw a video of him at the Federal Society Convention uh, last week, and he was livid. And I think he was channeling what I'm sort of getting at here. It's, it's you can't take this single concurrence and, uh, you know, blow it up into this sort of this, this, this rubber stamp for government action. I, I, it can't be done. Before the chief handed down this concurring opinion in South Bay, how were lower courts approaching these challenges to COVID orders? Before South Bay, the courts were actually somewhat divided. Uh, you had a very good opinion on the Sixth Circuit from three judges, Judges Sutton, McKeague, and Albandian. Um, and they seem to suggest that you actually review skeptically the government's motivations, that you don't simply defer to the restrictions on free exercise. This is a, a case called Maryville Baptist Church. And I thought that was exactly right. Um, but after South Bay, it's been monolithic. Every single court, top to bottom, Bush, Obama, Clinton, whoever appointed them is just South Bay all the way. And I think that's just a, it's just been a colossal mistake of judgment. Now, in his dissent in Calvary Chapel versus Sisolak, Kavanaugh proposed a different model than the chiefs. What does that look like? Well, Justice Kavanaugh, I think, um, really brought his A-game in the Calvary Chapel case. This was a case in Nevada. And the governor, um, I'm slightly paraphrasing, um, the governor allowed casinos to open without occupancy limits. They had you know, a 50% limit, but if they fit thousands of people, that's fine. Houses of worship had hard caps of like 50%, 50 people, right? It's a, it was blank in the exact number, but it was a hard cap, right? So you get these massive mega churches that can fit thousands of people that would fit like a few dozen. And you, know, you have Caesar's Palace, which can fit you know thousands of people. The court upheld the governor's order. In this case, the chief justice didn't say a word. Um, he didn't try to rationalize the South Bay opinion. He just upheld it. And I think that's a sign that he may realize he might have been over his head. He just he, he didn't have any defense, so he said nothing. And they just had this unsigned shadow docket opinion. Justice Kavanaugh came in, and I think he gave a very good opinion. This is, I think it's his actually his strongest work since he became a judge on the Supreme Court. And he said the First Amendment, the free exercise clause, should be viewed as a most favored right. right. What does that mean? The presumption is that the free exercise of religion gets whatever preferential treatment exists, that if any group gets it, then the religion gets it also. And then it's a state's job to explain why religion does not get it, right? Kavanaugh inverted the burden of proof. In constitutional litigation, usually whoever's a burden of proof loses. Roberts put the burden of proof on the worshipers, on the church. Kavanaugh flipped it. Kavanaugh said, no, 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 no. This is not the worshiper's job. It's a state job to explain why casinos are okay, but churches are not. Maybe they have an explanation, right? I don't know. Maybe they'll have the proof. If they have that proof, they can win. But this is not the job of the people who simply want to worship to justify their need to pray. The First Amendment made that decision for us. We don't have to put that burden upon them. Um, the Kavanaugh concurrence was only joined by him, as I recall. The others didn't join it, but I'm sure they would. I'm sure they would come along if they if they had to. Uh, but I think it was a very sophisticated opinion, and I do hope that soon, hopefully very very soon, we get five votes for that opinion, maybe six. So there are two cases coming down the pipeline, both coming out of New York, one of which, if I remember correctly, you're um, an amicus in that would re yes. uh, that could resolve this issue. Can you talk about those? Sure. Well, I, I just for full disclosure, I'm actually co-counsel on a case that's currently pending in the Northern District of New York on behalf of a Jewish school in New York, and we challenged Governor Cuomo's orders. Um, that case was on the fast track until it went on the slow track, and now it's kind of on the slow track because the governor modified his orders. It's still alive. We still have a case, uh, but it's you know taking its time now. 
Um, but there's another case that's far more pressing. It involves uh, Governor Cuomo's restrictions on houses of worship in New York, and that's still live. And there's a petition before the U.S. Supreme Court um, on that case. Now, I, I filed the amicus brief in the Second Circuit on this case. I didn't file a SCOTUS brief because just it's too quick. You know, these these uh, these rocket docket cases are just you can't keep up with. I got you. Uh, but this case is asking the court to um, uh, uh, halt. The, uh, the the Governor Cuomo's uh, restrictions on houses of worship in New York. Um, and uh, uh, most importantly, I think this, this is a very key point, they asked for two forms of relief. They asked for um, an injunction, which you know John Roberts doesn't like, but he ain't the boss anymore. Um, and they also asked for cert before judgment. Um, he had a good run. He had a good, good two-year run as the king of the castle. And now he's just the, the court jester, perhaps. And I'm most, mostly joking. Right? But I... I, I Look, Roberts' influence is waning. I mean, just the fact that you have Justice Barrett on the court and they're not going to pack the court this year means at least for one or two years, you have nine and Roberts is not the center of the world. I think the center of the world is either Kavanaugh or Gorsuch or maybe Barrett in a given case. So I think they're the kingmakers. Um, so if Roberts wants to be in dissent perpetually, he can do that, but I think he's going to find a way to be in the majority. You mentioned that this particular case is, uh, they asked for cert before judgment. Can you explain what that means and why it's yes. important? Usually certiorari is a long process. The court grants certiorari, you know, um, after the lower courts finally resolving the case. But in some rare cases, the court can actually grant review early. It doesn't happen often, but it happens every now and then. Um, and they, if there's some really pressing issue that really resolves, that really needs national resolution, it's a good vehicle. Uh, critically, you need only four votes for uh, a certiorari usually, but I think here you probably need five to uh, sort of expedite the case. Um, I think you get five votes. I do think you get five votes to expedite this case and hear it this term. This has been divided the lower courts for now almost nine months. This is an issue of national significance. Um, and, and, and I mean this point sincerely. I don't think the chief intended his concurrence to be the end-all be-all. I don't think that was the intent. I think he sort of put that as a placeholder. Let's see where we are in a few months. Look, now we're in month, what, nine of the lockdown. We need resolution. What is the appropriate standard? The lower courts are crying. They're desperate. They're begging for guidance. And I think at least five members of the court actually will heed that call. Do you think that the chief would be one of them? I don't think he has a choice. I mean this sincerely. He, he may not wish to grant cert, but I think there are five votes to expedite, so it doesn't really matter what he thinks. I mean that sincerely. And once the court grants cert, I don't think he wants to be in dissent. I think you'll find a way of being the majority and write the majority opinion. That, again, historically, right? Historically, chief justices have never been in dissent. I can't think of one who's ever been consistently in dissent. So Roberts will have to moderate back to the right if he wants, or he can just dissent for the next four years to Lena Kagan. They can be, you know, buddies in, in dissent. Um, but I don't. I just. I don't see that in his cards. Um, I think he'll find some way. And Roberts will say something. Well, you know. With an injunction pending appeal, it's a very strict standard. That was Southway. But here we have cert before judgments. We can resolve this normal. I mean, he, he, he can moderate, moderate that very quickly. So do you think that Kavanaugh's approach in Calvary Chapel uh, is likely to be adopted to be the standard going forward? I think if Justice Barrett is on the same page as Kavanaugh, yeah, I would give, I would give Kavanaugh the majority opinion. Let, let him write a solid opinion. And, and I, mean, I mean that since if the chief's willing to give up his ego for a bit and give it to Kavanaugh, I think it would be a much stronger opinion. You know, Roberts, I mean, look, this is what happens. Roberts might try and write a very wishy-washy middle-of-the-road opinion, and, and the other five are like, that's nice. We're going to write our own opinion, and you can concur in judgment. You know, and when we, when you're the sixth concurring in judgment, that doesn't look very good. So I think he would just join. So, I mean, that, that's that's Cal, that, that's Roberts' dilemma. If he tries to be too much the middle, he loses the other five. He just, you have to drop off and concur in judgment. 
right? You know, Kennedy would always do this, but he would be the fifth. Now Roberts is the sixth. So really his, his influence is much less. If you have, look, if you have the Calvary Chapel four, the Calvary coming to save the day, right? And Justice Barrett agrees with them. I think Kavanaugh's majority opinion or Alito. Alito may keep it for himself because he's most senior, but either one I think is fine. Well, I suppose Thomas would get to assign it in that case, right? Yeah, I think I think Thomas would give it to Alito because he had the uh, the principal dissent in Calvary Chapel. So, assuming let's assume hypothetically Kavanaugh's approach from Calvary Chapel uh, is what's applied going forward, what does that look like in practice? Say, for instance, Kavanaugh had uh, had the votes to write the opinion in South Bay. How might that have shaped out? Oh my God, what a good counterfactual! You know. How do I say this without sounding, you know, paranoid? But I think the last nine months have looked very different from a policy perspective. I think if if Kavanaugh had the majority in, in Calvary Chapel, I think that states would have to treat houses of worship the same way they treat so-called essential businesses. And I think the world would be probably pretty similar. Um, you know, there's this there's this prejudice that people go to church and they sing and they scream at the top of their lungs without masks on. And that's just not true. Right. I'm sure there's some churches where that's the case. But if you look at the churches who went to court, they were willing to wear masks. They were willing to social distance. Right. They were willing to uh, uh, time their exit and exiting of the their entering and exiting of the church to avoid, you know, too much congestion. They were willing to take every measure conceivable. And look, I am, you know, I'm not I'm not an epidemiologist. I don't pretend to be. But if the house of worship were given the same sort of guidance as other so-called essential businesses, I don't know why it couldn't work, right? Um, now here in Texas, look, there are no restrictions houses of worship. We've had this now for nine months and churches just go on as they used to. And most churches and synagogues, including my own, voluntarily took on all these measures to keep their people safe. I think at bottom, and this is perhaps taking a bigger picture, um, there's prejudice with religion in our society. And there's a, th- there's a belief that we can't trust religion, that they're trying to get around the law. And there's just this aversion to even thinking that houses of worship could possibly wear masks, that they can't do it, that there was some church in Seattle in March that didn't wear masks, and that's that's it. That's the end-all be-all, right? That That's everything. Um, and I think it's unfortunate. And Kavanaugh's position is if you want to impose a heightened restriction on houses of worship, prove it. Give us evidence. Show us why houses of worship are more dangerous. If you can do it, good, you get your rule. If not, leave us alone. You mentioned this divide between essential and non-essential, which is not a differentiation that's existed in the law really until COVID. How have courts wrestled with fitting that essential, non-essential divide into existing frameworks, uh, reviewing challenges to COVID orders? Before COVID, um, none of us had ever heard of this concept of essential versus non-essential goods. I mean, it's been in existence for years in the sort of Homeland Security preparation, but I just had never heard of it. But what happened, what happened almost immediately after COVID is, is governors and mayors and, 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 and city councils use this phrase to simply distinguish rights, right? It was never conceivable that a house of worship would just be deemed non-essential. I just could never have conceived that. And it reflects, I think, a general prejudice. Now, to be fair, in red states, for example, my home state of Texas, for some period of time, the government said that abortions were not essential. But you can be sure as hell in California, abortions were essential, but houses of worship weren't, right? Essential just became a proxy for what you thought was important. And let's be very candid about this. Um, Now, when we're dealing with a fundamental constitutional right, the government doesn't get to 
subordinate a right is not essential. It is essential. This is what Kavanaugh wrote. It's a most favored status, right? Most favored right status. I think that's what the Bill of Rights does. I'm not so convinced for substantive due process rights. I think it's a different argument. And 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 this is where my friends in the Fifth Circuit wrote the abortion opinion might be closer to the correct answer. But at a minimum, the free exercise clause is not considered the sort of non-essential right that can be waived based on pandemic. Professor Josh, it was so great to have you on to help us unpack these questions. Were there any other thoughts about this topic you'd like to leave our audience with before you go? Well, I'm recording this Friday afternoon. We might get a stay order tonight. So by the time this airs, it might be obsolete, but I hope it's not. (laughs) All right. Well, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. All right, GC, are you ready for some loosely related Thanksgiving-themed Supreme Court trivia? I'm amazed that you were able to find (laughs) Thanksgiving-themed trivia, but hit me. Well, it is loosely related, but I'll give it my best shot. Uh, Let's go start with FDR, uh, GC. Which Supreme Court justice often visited FDR at Hyde Park, including occasionally joining him there for Thanksgiving? You know, I didn't know that that any Supreme Court justice did, but I know that FDR was close friends with Felix Frankfurter, so that's my guess. That's exactly right, GC. FDR and Frankfurter, they actually became friends while they were both working in the Wilson administration, and they renewed their friendship after FDR became the governor of New York and continued it into his presidency. In fact, Frankfurter served as an advisor to FDR until FDR nominated him to the Supreme Court in 1938 following the death of Justice Benjamin Cardozo. Uh, So they definitely uh, were were close personally and professionally as well. All right, so here's, here's an interesting question, GC. How many Supreme Court cases do you think explicitly mention Thanksgiving? And since this one's a little tough, uh, hopefully not like your Thanksgiving turkey. Uh, I'll offer you a range. Uh, okay. Do you think it's 1 to 10, 11 to 20, 21 to 30, 31 to 40, or 41 to 50 uh, cases that mention Thanksgiving? Okay, well, I'm shocked that there are more than a very small number, but but your range expands up to 41 to 50, which I, I can't imagine. <laughs> I can't, I'm going to pick 1 to 10. I, I can't imagine that there are that many cases. Well, it's a good guess, GC, but there are actually 37 Supreme Court cases that mention Thanksgiving. And they run the gambit for why the court was mentioning it. They include everything from labor disputes to speedy trial cases, But many of the court's mentions of Thanksgiving actually come up in the First Amendment context and involve cases about religious displays on public property. So since that's the case, I thought it might be interesting to focus in on a couple of those cases. So let me ask you about one. One of those cases involved the Ten Commandments hanging on a courthouse wall in Kentucky. It was a 2005 case. Justice Souter wrote the majority opinion, and he ultimately found that the display violated the Establishment Clause. But in the process, he engaged in a lengthy discussion about whether Thanksgiving was originally viewed as more of a religious holiday or as more of a secular holiday. Uh, Do you know what case I'm talking about, GC? You know, I do. And now now I understand where Thanksgiving pops up, at least in a few cases. 37, though, I got to check your number on that. <laughs> but the case you're talking about is McCreary County versus the ACLU. Yes, that's exactly right. 
So let me ask you my next question, GC. There was actually a companion case that came out the same day as McCreary County. And in that case, the court also issued an opinion that was, in fact, authored by Chief Justice Rehnquist. And it also discussed the historical background of Thanksgiving, but it upheld a display of the Ten Commandments that was located on the grounds of the Texas State Capitol. And the court found that that display did not violate the Establishment Clause. What case am I talking about now? That would be Van Orden versus Perry. And actually, I have... Oh, well, first you tell me if I'm right. Yes, you're absolutely correct. That is Van Orden v. Perry. Oh, excellent. Okay, and I have, actually, I'm going to reverse it on you. I have a trivia question for you. Uh Uh-oh. It's surprising that McCreary County and Van Orden came out a day apart. Do you know who the swing vote justice is between those two cases? Well, only because I was researching and preparing for today's trivia, GC, Uh, But I think the swing justice was Justice Breyer. That is correct. It's really interesting why he swung one way or the other. We don't have the time to discuss it today, but maybe we should bring a a professor on to talk about the history of that case sometime. Absolutely. And I think it is still a a very timely uh, set of decisions. Similar issues about public displays of monuments are still being litigated today. All right, GC, are you ready for the final Thanksgiving-themed Supreme Court trivia question? You bet. All right, now this one is tough, but which Supreme Court justice received an unusual request to help someone retrieve a barrel of whiskey in preparation for Thanksgiving in 1922, which was shortly after Prohibition had begun? Oh man, he received a a request for a barrel of whiskey to help retrieve a barrel of whiskey. That's right. Oh, there's there's no way I know this. Well, let me give you a hint, GC. Uh, this may help you. Okay. This justice was also nominated by one of the major political parties uh, to run for president. Oh. You know, I should know this because I think that I, I asked Amy this trivia question at the end of last term. Uh, I've forgotten. So it was actually Charles Evans Hughes. Ah, uh, uh, of course it was. And Hughes was an interesting character. He served from 1910 to 1916 as an associate justice, and he actually resigned from the court in 1916 to accept the Republican nomination to run against uh, the incumbent president, Woodrow Wilson. And Wilson ended up beating Hughes in a very close election. All right, but tell me about this whiskey barrel. So uh, Hughes went on and actually became Secretary of State from 1921 to 1925. And so it was during this time period when Hughes was Secretary of State that he received this request. Uh, And, you know, it was during Prohibition. uh, Hughes was clearly troubled by it, uh, but he actually had kind of a funny response to the request. (laughs) He wrote a note back uh, saying that he couldn't assist with it uh, because the request didn't fall within the State Department's jurisdiction. And so if you or any of our listeners want more information, the full story is actually posted uh, at the Supreme Court's website right now, and it's a really interesting read. Well, that's it for today. Thank you so much for letting me join you, GC. I've really enjoyed it. And thanks to everyone else for listening to SCOTUS 101. Please be sure to subscribe on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever else you listen. And as always, we'd really appreciate it if you left us a five-star rating. 
You can follow us on Twitter and Instagram at SCOTUS101 and email us at SCOTUS101 at heritage.org with your questions, comments, or ideas for future shows. We here at SCOTUS101 and the Heritage Foundation wish you and your loved ones a very happy Thanksgiving. You've been listening to SCOTUS 101, brought to you by more than half a million members of the Heritage Foundation. Executive produced by Amy Swear and Giancarlo Canaparo. Sound designed by Lauren Evans, Mark Guiney, and John Pop. For more information, visit heritage.org.